0: Welcome back to another episode of the Piano Rhapsody Podcast, an amateur's guide to classical piano. This is a podcast where you follow along the journey of an amateur piano player with the goal of playing Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue one day. Every week, we take a step towards that goal by exploring one of the pieces that I encounter along the road, examining the history surrounding the work and the music within. The end goal is that we all walk away appreciating music a little bit more and with a little bit more knowledge that we can utilize to analyze more complex works in the future. This is episode 7.2, the second episode in a series spotlighting one of the major piano composers of the Romantic period, Frederick Chopin. Chopin wrote almost exclusively for piano, but experimented with a variety of compositions. Last week, we talked about a traditional Polish dance called the Polonaise, and looked at a piece Chopin wrote when he was only seven years old. This week, we're going to look into a form that Chopin made famous during the Romantic period. A form called the Nocturne. The word nocturne is derived from the Latin word nocturnus, meaning night, which you have probably already guessed based on English words like nocturnal. A nocturne is a musical work that aims to evoke a setting of nighttime, or a work that is inspired by night. This sentiment for a composition dates back to the 18th century, with pieces called noturnos, which were the Italian equivalents. Mozart wrote a work called a noturno, which wasn't very evocative of the night, but might have been named a noturno for more literal reasons as in it was meant to be performed at night, like a serenade. The distinction between the two actually suggests what specific time the piece was to be played. Serenades typically around 9pm, while noturnos closer to 11pm. Music to be played around the midnight hour. But breaking away from noturnos, let's go back to the nocturnes which tend to be single-movement solo piano works. But a handful have also been composed for other instruments, like violin or full orchestra. The first nocturnes were written in the 19th century by a composer named John Field. He pioneered this name with works that had a cantabile, or song-like melody, over-arpeggiated, almost guitar-like accompaniment, As a whole, the nocturne is one of the most lyrical, expressive musical forms that is often paired with a mood of melancholy or gloom. They are beautiful works, but devastatingly so, exploring the bluer side of the emotional palette. If you find yourself drawn to the sad, slow ballad on a rock or pop album, the nocturne is your classical equivalent. While Field may have birthed this form of piano composition, Chopin immortalized it. Chopin wrote 21 nocturnes for solo piano, which include one of his most famous compositions, The Nocturne in E-flat major, opus nine, number two. We'll get to that one another day. It's no surprise that Chopin was a great admirer of Field's work. But the feeling wasn't exactly mutual. Upon hearing some of Chopin's nocturnes, Field is reported to describe Chopin as a sickroom talent. Considering Chopin's lasting popularity over Field, I suppose the last laugh here went to Chopin. Especially considering that the word nocturne, you know, the one that Field invented, is now more closely associated with Chopin, the man that he dismissed. Sometimes history can be cruel. Chopin expanded on Field's idea for the nocturne by incorporating a heavy operatic influence. He took that cantabile melodic line one step further by emulating the melody as the voice of an Italian aria, which freed up the rhythm and made the melodies more complex. Across all of his compositions, Chopin utilized an idea called rubato, which is the Italian word for stolen. Chopin was not a fan of the strict metronome rhythm and encouraged the interpreters of his music to bend time a bit with the concept of rubato, which allows you to steal time from the adjacent notes, holding one note a bit longer here rushing through a section there, using the concept of time to build tension or milk expression. And nocturnes are the prime playgrounds for use of rubato and some of the best examples of Chopin's poetic style. Chopin's peers like Mendelssohn, Liszt, and Schumann lauded these works which ended up making a lasting impact during the Romantic period. Chopin opened the door and influenced many other later Romantic composers to give the Nocturne a try. Foray, Seti, Scriabin, Debussy, Rachmaninoff, Grieg, and Lieberman, among others. Today, we're going to focus on The Nocturne in G Minor, Opus 15, Number 3, a work that Chopin subtitled At the Cemetery. But when it was about to go into print, Chopin removed the title at the last minute, declaring Let them guess. Even without that blatant title hint, the scent of death pervades this nocturne, written in the gloomy key of G minor. But before we jump into the music, let's set the stage by talking about the great composer's own death. You know, to lighten the mood a bit. Chopin was a long-term sufferer of tuberculosis, and by the time he was in his late 30s, the disease started to take control of his life. It rendered Chopin unable to teach or compose, which ripped away his two main sources of income. Death and poverty threatened Chopin's very existence, but luckily his friends, family, and patrons would not allow him that fate. He let go of his lavish apartment in Paris and moved to a villa outside of the city. While it was distant, from his window he could see Notre Dame and the Tuileries. The rent was high at 400 francs a month, but one of his patrons, Princess Natalia Obrewska, kept the true rent price hidden from him and paid half of it herself. Chopin could hardly believe his fortune and bragged about his amazing new place at only 200 francs a month. Chopin's other friends and family sent him funds as well a thousand francs here, a thousand francs there. But all of these gifts were overshadowed by a generous endowment of 25,000 francs from Jane Sterling, which she sent to Chopin via a package that never reached him. Sterling visited Chopin. And was astounded to see that he was still living impoverished, and started to discreetly ask around to figure out what happened to all the money she sent. She quickly uncovered that the package was quote-unquote misplaced by Chopin's concierge, Madame Etienne, who claimed she had no recollection of ever receiving it. Right. And here's where the story gets a little strange. Because where do you go when you're missing a package containing 25,000 francs? Well, to the psychic, of course. Jane Sterling consulted a clairvoyant named Alexis, whom all the wealthy Parisians called on for his psychic powers. Alexis said he could help, but first he needed an item belonging to Madame Etienne to assess her energy. Chopin discreetly secured a lock of her hair, and Alexis went to work doing whatever it is that psychics do. He declared that the money was in a sealed envelope hidden behind a wall clock next to Madame Etienne's bed. And believe it or not, he was right. Luckily for Madame Etienne, the package had remained sealed and the money was untouched. So Chopin believed her innocence and that it was just a slip of her memory. Even after this supernatural detective fiasco, Chopin refused to accept the generous gift from Jane Sterling, but she ended up talking him into at least accepting part of it, which put Chopin's financial worries to bed for the moment. Chopin suffered two hemorrhages and his condition worsened; his doctor saying he was in the final stages of consumption. Chopin wrote to his sister Ludwika, begging for her and her husband to come visit. Ludwika, her husband and her daughter came to move in with Chopin, and Ludwika barely left his bedside, commonly talking with him through the night. Ludwika's husband was feeling like his wife's time was being abused by Chopin's insatiable demands, and asked his wife to return with him back to Poland. Ludwika refused, saying she wanted to stay with her brother until the end, so her husband made the return trip to Poland alone. Chopin had many high-profile people visit him on his deathbed. Ambassadors, nobility, royalty. They would talk with him, read to him, sing for him, or play piano for him, as he was too weak to play it himself. Actually, there were so many visitors and eyewitness accounts of Chopin's final days that it makes it difficult to construct an accurate narrative. His anteroom was filled with countesses, princesses, photographers, and of course, his sister and dearest friends. One figure present that deserves a special mention is the artist Teofil Kivakovsky, who sketched a series of drawings of Chopin's last hours that will be forever linked with the legendary composer's story, likely the truest representation of this solemn scene over all the narrative accounts. Chopin refused his last rites, as he was never a religious man, and thought he would be a hypocrite if he were to start now. He also requested that all of his unpublished manuscripts be burned. But after his death, this responsibility was up to his sister, Ludvika, who refused her brother's request. Had she complied, we would have lost the fantasy impromptu, eight mazurkas, five waltzes, and one of the nocturnes, among other works. These works were all compiled and published posthumously across the next several years. Chopin died on October 17, 1849, at the age of 39. Right before his death, the doctor held a candle to Chopin's pale face and darkened eyes, and asked, Are you suffering? to which Chopin replied, No more. They were Chopin's last words. A partial autopsy was performed on Chopin's body, per his request of having his heart removed and preserved in Cognac, where it still remains at a church in Warsaw. Chopin had a fear of being buried alive, and begged his sister to have them cut his body after his death to ensure that he was actually dead. For the morbidly curious, it's rather easy to find photographs of Chopin's heart online, as a review of his heart was recently published in 2017 in the Journal of American Medicine, citing pericarditis due to tuberculosis as the likely cause of death. Chopin's funeral was a lavish affair, attended by over 4,000 mourners, through invitation only. Jane Sterling once again came to the financial rescue and paid for the entire event. It wouldn't be a proper funeral for Chopin without several musical performances throughout the service, which included Mozart's Requiem at Chopin's own request. And that brings us to our piece of the day Chopin's Nocturne in G minor, opus 15, number 3 with an unofficial title, At the Cemetery. This work was written between 1832 and 1833, while Chopin was living in Paris. It is rumored that Chopin wrote this nocturne the day after attending a production of Hamlet, but this has never been able to be verified. Opus 15 is a set of three nocturnes, and this is the third of that work but the sixth nocturne that Chopin had written overall. It was dedicated to Ferdinand Hiller, a German composer who at the time was labeled one of the greats, but now he has largely been forgotten. Again, cruel history. The structure of this nocturne is a little peculiar, in that most of Chopin's nocturnes are written in a ternary form of ABA, While this one does not repeat its A section, so it is in a binary form of AB. The A section is marked lento, meaning slow, and contains a languished, hesitating melody in the home key of G minor. In the spirit of the nocturne, this may represent walking through a cemetery at night. This section continues with the start of a development section, where Chopin explores a variety of different key progressions, culminating with a chromatic rise to the climax of the piece. So let's take a second to talk about chromaticism, because it plays an important role in this piece. A chromatic scale is very simple. It's basically the incremental rise or descent along the keyboard, hitting every single key along the way. So here's an example of a chromatic scale. I want to isolate out the chromatic elements of the climax of this piece, and slow it down, so you can really hear the chromaticism at work. As you can hear, it's an extremely effective way to build tension. That climax brings the A section to a close, and the cool-down ushers in the B section, which is labeled religioso, or as you might guess, religious. The B section is written as a four-part chorale, reflecting a choir singing a hymn, with one line as the soprano, one line as the alto, one line as a tenor, and one line as a bass. This is a serene moment of meditation that can easily be imagined being sung by a church choir. ends with loud octaves across both hands, representing the ringing of a church bell tower. While the inner voices add in softer accompaniment, The church bells bring the nocturne to a close, with a special type of chord that we've encountered once before, the Picardi third, which means that instead of ending the piece in the home chord of G minor, Chopin swipes the minor chord for G major, ending part B with a small glimmer of hope. And since this nocturne does not repeat Part A, that brings us to the end of our piece for the day. So let's take a moment to reflect on death with this solemn work, Chopin's Nocturne in G Minor, Opus 15, Number 3. Chopin was certainly the king of melancholy. This nocturne definitely took a darker turn compared to last week's Polonaise, and it's a more mature work written by an adult as opposed to a seven-year-old boy. Next week, we're going to continue on our Chopin journey with an example of another one of the traditional Polish dances, the mazurka. The standalone recording of this nocturne can be found directly in the podcast feed. If you'd like to hear more, check out Piano Rhapsody on SoundCloud for the recordings of all the pieces heard on this podcast and more. If you're interested in taking your classical music knowledge from the piano to the orchestra, please consider checking out the link in the episode details for a free two-month trial of Prime Phonic. A classical music streaming service with over three million tracks to choose from. It also helps support this podcast, so I appreciate it. Another way to support this podcast for free is to click on subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use to listen. If you'd like to reach out to me, find me on Twitter at Piano Rhapsody. Or feel free to email me at podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for your time and your ears, and I'll talk to you again next week. Cue the outro.